Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat Podcast. We are solution architects and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we dive deep, demystify technology, and talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and Deep Tech Dives in topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 79 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And for today's show, Shai and I are going to continue with the reInvent recap as part of this four-part series. Now, before we get started, I have to ask Shai, have you caffeinated as yet? Because folks, the reality is to make Tech Chat, it relies on a few people, you know, to do that hard work, you know, to spread the load around, to prep these show notes. And Shai and myself are probably as far apart as time zones go, you know, very little overlap. 10 p.m. here, I think 5 a.m. or so for you. Yeah, and then on top of that, it's it's also starting to get summer for you, and it's starting to get winter for me here too. So we're not just time flipped; we're also uh, seasonally flipped here too. Um, yeah, and it's just weird because it's it's still dark here. Um, it'll be dark for like another hour or two, and then when I get done with work at about 4:30, it's going to be dark again. So it's like I feel like I'm just working in a, an igloo somewhere. Yeah, that time of year. Um, look for me at the moment. It's nine o'clock here or nine thirty, and you know it's practically just getting dark now. So you know, very very different. All right, so folks, this is the second of our four part series, and today we're going to focus on announcements for our development community. Not really a story, but so I have a sticker on my laptop, right? It says, "I hate programming. I hate programming. I hate programming." A few times, and then it says, "I love programming," right? And then followed by, "I hate programming again," because I think just that's the way my life is sometimes. (laughs) <laughs> look, I hear you on that, but look, I think you need to work on your stand-up routine. Look, for example, try this, right? <laughs> Two bytes meet. The first byte asks, are you Will? Then the second byte replies, no, I'm just feeling a bit off. Ka-ching. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so look, sometimes I think, you know, we all need to step back for a minute when you hit that wall, think it through, or even ask a friend. So for the likes of myself, I have a few good friends that I always bug for, you know, coding uh, to be able to debug this and that. You know, I understand my limitations here. And look, some of our services are going to be easier to use than others. Services that are wrapped in an API like AWS Recognition is going to be easier to use for myself than, say, a framework like Cafe or TensorFlow. Look, Shy, look, AWS is a platform for builders. We all know that. And as they say, software is eating the world. If we look at the last episode, you know, reflecting back, the summary to me in a lot of ways is faster, cheaper, you know, hardware. Yes, it's a bit of a game changer, but it's not going to move the needle alone. And it's what we talk about today that's going to shift this needle. All right, Shai. So look, after watching the keynotes, and I say plural as there was plenty of them, and let me ask you, given you are in the field, you know, I'm not these days, with all aspects of AWS, which announcements in the dev space has really resonated with your customers? So, so really, I think there's, uh, we're going to talk about announcement in a little bit about AppFlow and Connect. And I think that's really the biggest challenge for a lot of the customers I've worked with um, is they have so much uh, disparate data, not just in their environments, but also third-party applications. You know, and we talk about, you know, shadow IT and, and what happens when, when, when uh, you have shadow IT, but they really have this problem of shadow data. Um, and they try to, and they spend so much time and money and effort trying to figure out ways to bring in all this data from different sources through all these custom integrations. Um, sometimes it's even third-party tools that they have to implement. And just the integrations, um, you know, they, they launch Connect and that's pretty quick. But when they start going down the integrations path, that's sometimes something I've seen take 6, 12, 18 months and then having to bring in multiple partners and solutions. Um, so I'm actually really excited for that one. I want to save that one a little bit, um, but it is around AppFlow. AppFlow, yeah, look, absolutely. I think for some customers, you know, that no-code approach where you can effectively click, you know, integration, don't need to worry about ETLs or products like Glue, etc. makes it very, very simple. Okay, so look, let's dive into these announcements. Yeah, so first up um, is additional capabilities with um, Amazon CodeGuru Reviewer uh, to help you find and remediate security issues in your code. Uh, CodeGuru Reviewer security detectors help you identify security risks from the top 10 open web application security project categories, uh, security practice, best practices for AWS APIs, and common uh, Java crypto libraries. Uh, these security detectors use machine learning and automated reasoning to analyze and detect hard-to-find security vulnerabilities. 
Code reviewer security detectors can help you identify four categories of code um, and their potential security issues. So for example, we have um, AWS API security best practices. Um, you also have the Java crypto library best practices to help you check for uh, common Java cryptography libraries. Then you have security web applications to help you check web application security related issues, um, such as cross-site scripting, maybe LDAP injection. Um, then you have the AWS security best practices, um, which bring the internal expertise, such as AWS crypto recommendations. Um, this one's going to be a really quick one to try out. Really, you just got to go to your uh, account, log in, uh, head over to the CodeGuru console. Uh, once you're in there, you can trigger security analysis on your entire repo or just a, a or the code base uh, by just uploading the source and uh, and its build artifacts. Uh, the security recommendations are provided at no incremental cost. Absolutely fantastic. Look, and if you haven't heard of CodeGuru, it's you know a developer tool. You know you might have. In the past, you know, done like pair programming, et cetera, to, you know, to do code reviews, et cetera. So look, CodeGuru is all about providing intelligent recommendations for improving code quality and identifying applications the most expensive lines of code, you know, things that could be done in a more optimal way, you know, improving performance. Just remember you were charged on a per lines of code scanned, and that's going to also include libraries, you know, as part of your code. Um, I highly recommend CodeGuru. However, you know, cost aside, one of the issues for myself with CodeGuru, and this is just for me, is I'm a .NET Python guy. Um, and CodeGuru at this stage is limited to just Java. Oh, well, hang on, Shane. So, so you'll like this one. Uh, I'm a recovering sysadmin, so I'm particularly, about this, I'm particularly excited about this one too. Um, I use uh, Python nowadays for most of my coding and scripting, even the case for IO when I use CircuitPython. Hey, absolutely. Same here. Um, so wait a second. Are you implying that CodeGuru supports more than just Java? So I don't need to do, you know, public static void. That's probably all I remember from university here. <laughs> no, no. So so CodeGuru's reviewer and profiler uh, now supports Python. It is in preview. Um, this is in addition to Java, and it's going to help you identify those uh, hard-to-find coding issues in your Python code. Uh, you can try this out same same way I explained before. Um, you'll just commit that code. Uh, and uh, the reviewer profile will scan that code. Um, I actually tried this in one of um, on one of my old GitHub repos, and I forked uh, that I forked over a year ago uh, by running the repository analysis. And it was actually surprising to see that year plus old code only had two um, vulnerability issues. Uh, the console pointed out an issue with global variables, uh, why they were bad, as well as calling out an outdated API that I had used. Um, and then I clicked in the error, and it took me right to the line of code where the problem was. So Shane, uh, I haven't had a chance to use the CodeGuru profile yet. Um, have you or any of your customers? I have not. But look, um, I think I've just got to go back there. You know, you mentioned Circuit Python. It's just ringed a bell here. I think we need to chat later <laughs> offline about this because look, I'm really happy about this announcement because look, for you know, I guess the likes of us, Python is such an easy language to pick up. You know, you from machine learning notebooks with you know Jupyter notebooks through to the sys admin glue, you know, it's a great language of choice. But look back to your question here. Um, whilst I haven't had an opportunity to use CodeGuru's profiler, um, I think, you know, customer's mileage may vary here depending on their software development maturity. So, you know, obviously there are static analysis tools out there and obviously good developers, but that's static analysis. And the profiler is going to be, you know, attaching to your code as it's running, you know, like a profiler. So profiler collects runtime performance data from your application and is going to provide recommendations that can help fine tune your application performance. Perfect for detecting things like memory leaks. So profiler will detect this and alert you to this problem. Thanks, Shane. I'll have to give that one a try. Um, okay, so that was CodeGuru. Um, not to be confused with a brand new service we just launched at reInvent called uh, Amazon DevOps Guru. Uh, this new service is, gives you a simpler way to measure and improve your application's operational performance and availability and reduce expensive downtime. Uh, using machine learning models informed by years of operational experience in building, scaling, and maintaining highly available applications at Amazon.com, uh, DevOps Guru identifies behaviors that deviate from normal operation patterns. With DevOps, when DevOps Guru identifies a critical issue, it automatically alerts you with a summary of related anomalies, uh, the likely root cause, and the context of when and where the issue occurred. DevOps Guru also, when possible, uh, will provide prescriptive recommendations on how to remediate that issue. Uh, you can uh, use Amazon DevOps Guru in preview, uh, check the uh, product page for the available regions. So listeners, look, take a look at the product page, especially the FAQ for DevOps Guru, as it will have more information around how to get started with DevOps Guru, 
How do you specify the resources for DevOps Guru to analyze and the issues that DevOps Guru can detect? All right, so look, moving on, Lambda, you know, our serverless compute engine that has really changed the way we do many things these days. You know, it is the universal glue and really serverless is a de facto choice for many greenfield developments on AWS. So look, many customers often ask, you know, why is there a limit of three gigs of RAM? Look, especially now with things like Lambda layers and a 15 minute execution time. So I'm happy to share that the limit is now 10 gig and customers now have access of up to six vCPUs. This is gonna help those compute intensive applications like machine learning, modeling, genomics, HPC, and so on. So you don't have to recreate your Lambda functions to take advantage of this. You can use your existing functions, but let me say two things to remember here. So with Lambda, you are charged in GB seconds or gigabyte seconds, and memory and CPU are tied together. Increase the CPU and RAM, increase the cost. So sometimes increasing the performance is the right thing to do. Say you increase your memory and your code runs five times faster at just a little cost, you know, well worth it. So remember to performance test. You know, you want to find that sweet spot around performance and cost. Secondly, you know, the maximum runtime of Lambda is now 15 minutes. So you can get a lot of work done in that amount of time. Yeah, and another update we have to Lambda is the reduction of the billing granularity actually from 100 milliseconds down to one millisecond. So let's take an example of one of the functions I have. Runs for 30 milliseconds on average, and it used to bill for 100 milliseconds. Now it will only bill for that 30 millisecond uh, resulting in a 70% uh, drop in its duration spend. Uh, and best of all, there's nothing that customers have to do. Um, this change it will be effective uh, starting with the December 2020 billing cycle. Uh, this is an interesting one as, as we had the previous announcement that lets you uh, have bigger Lambda functions, uh, but then there's this one. So I think this uh, billing increment reduction is going to encourage developers to further break up their Lambda functions um, and optimize them further to even further drive down costs. Absolutely. So with increased granularity here, it is only going to accelerate the usage of Lambda. You know, there'll be often be many calculations, you know, showing that tipping point, you know, with the number of invocations and where it may be cheaper to run a container or an EC2 instance. With the billing duration, you know, moved down to one milliseconds, it is only going to make Lambda more attractive and accelerate, you know, the move to serverless computing here. So I can see the benefits for many of my old customers. Look, basically here, Everyone who uses Lambda is going to benefit from this. And for those who use Lambda at Edge, you know, Lambda running on CloudFront here, pricing has not changed just yet. Still 50 millisecond increments, but watch your space. If you, if you were using or thought about using API gateway with step functions, you want to listen in here. So just to recap, you know, step functions is our serverless orchestration platform. You know, if you need to orchestrate many Lambda functions, you know, you probably be going to be using step functions or want to use step functions here. So look, you can now create HTTP APIs that route requests to the new step functions synchronous express workflows. So these synchronous express workflows are ideal to manage high volume, short duration, synchronous workloads, such as orchestration of microservices behind API Gateway. So express workflows can now be synchronously invoked from API Gateway's HTTP APIs. Now we discussed HTTP APIs in a previous episode of AWS Tech Chat. So with this announcement, we've made it easy to set up direct operations with SQS. So SQS send message on Kinesis, the Kinesis put record and step function start sync execution in HTTPIs with more integrations in the future. So Shai, you've mentioned Connect a few times in the past. Um, you've worked with local customers. Customers in Australia absolutely love Connect. I think you should take the next one. So yeah, thanks, Shane. I'm super excited here to share this. I'm quite excited for the next one, actually. Um, this is the one I brought up before. Um, I've worked with a couple of customers over the last year and a half or so um, that have looked to deploy Connect. And one area I found that they usually struggle and spend most of the time in, as I mentioned before, um, is that custom connect uh, custom connectors to those third-party apps. Um, and up until now, you had to manually build or set up these integrations. Uh, there was custom code there. So I really can't wait to chat with my customers and share the uh, app flow integration uh, update with them. Uh, for those unfamiliar, AppFlow is a fully managed integration service um, that, was, that has pre-built connectivity with 15 source, uh, sources to SaaS applications such as Salesforce, Marketo, uh, Zendesk ServiceNow, and just a couple of clicks. Uh, it's all through the console. 
Um, and so now I, I, when I get back after the new year um, and we work on planning their integrations, we're, we're going to talk about the new service launched at reInvent uh, called Amazon Connect Customer Profiles. Um, this feature is in the Amazon Connect console. And after you enable it, um, customers will see the customer profiles in the left navigation bar. Um, once in that screen, you'll then set up the customer profile by providing a domain, uh, the KMS key that you need, um, and optionally a dead letter queue. You'll then add integration to this profile by choosing um, the internal, uh, external application that you want to connect with. Um, and after that, you configure agents to start using this profile. Uh, there's a great uh, blog post by my peers, uh, Shobhi Gupta, Devor Golak, and uh, Rajesh Wunav that, uh, that we'll put in the show notes. Awesome. Okay. So look, if AppFlow takes your fancy, we did an EventBridge and AppFlow special just a few episodes ago on episode 75. So look, AppFlow, simple service, point and click integration for so many services. Just to call out, whilst we have connectivity for many SaaS applications, I think you just mentioned 15 uh, there. The integration for your connector may be limited to specific SaaS applications or destinations. So look, in the context of Connect customer profiles, there's integration with Salesforce, Zendesk, Marketo, and ServiceNow, which makes a lot of sense because there's probably not that much you can do sending your Connect customer profiles back into Google Analytics. So the next one's actually similar, but for Honeycode, tell us about it. Yeah, so thanks, Shane. I was super excited with uh, Honeycomb when Honeycomb came out a couple months back. It's a uh, super quick way to build custom mobile web apps that you can connect to your existing tools and data. I actually used it uh, to build a few sample backend applications for my customer once, um, just to show them a demo of what a product intake look like, what a product intake app would look like. That customer and many other customers who are using Honeycode are going to appreciate this next one. Similar to the Connect integration with AppFlow, AppFlow now integrates with Honeycode so that app your customer wrote shy could now easily pull in data from one of those 15 different SaaS apps like we mentioned before. It's always interesting to see the apps that non-developers come up with here. When you take a business problem first approach, you often end up with a different end product than rather than you know trying to shoehorn a technical solution over something that we don't fully understand like many technologists do. I think I'm guilty of that at times. Yes, same here. And, and there was one example I was particularly thinking of, right? So I try to think of my local customers always and trying to think of how do we how do I apply these? So one example I'm already thinking of um, is, you know, a sales team, for example, can use Honeycode with Zapier uh, to build an app for processing sales inquiries from prospective customers, um, right? So instead of having to deal with, let's say, emails and spreadsheets, um, the team could use a single Honeycode app uh, that will allow the sales reps to process the inquiries uh, from the company website. The sales managers could then maybe drop a, um, you know, the approval for that quote in there. Um, the app could then drink maybe the quote document, maybe email that out to the customer. Um, you know, drop us a line if you have any ideas brewing in your head. There's just so much stuff you can do here. Yeah, for sure. So look, let's switch gears a bit and talk about Amplify. Quickly, a shout out to my friend, Ed Lima. So he is an ex-Melbourneian who made the jump to be the product manager of AWS Amplify. So Ed, I hope I do you justice here. So there was a recent release of the Amplify CLI to which you'll be able to spin up containers leveraging Fargate with minimal management overhead. So with this release, you can deploy REST APIs, GraphQL APIs based on Amplify provided container templates or bring your own containers from other projects. All you're going to need is a Docker file or Docker Compose configuration to get started. One of the key benefits of containers is portability. The build and deployment options are automatically inferred through your Docker Compose configuration and builds can be completely managed via the Amplify CLI without requiring Docker to be installed locally. That's pretty powerful. Mind you, you know, I think Every developer almost has Docker installed locally. So if you haven't touched Amplify, it's a great way to get started with a modern application development. It's going to create that boilerplate for you and get you quickly building and developing on AWS. Now, continuing with Amplify updates, this is going to simplify things for those developers working on backend applications. Amplify now offers an admin UI that offers front-end web and mobile developers an easy way to develop app backends and manage app content outside of the AWS console. Every Amplify app backend is now automatically set up with the admin UI, which can be used to model data, add authentication and authorization, and manage app content users and groups. Team members without AWS access can be invited to join the admin UI via email, giving both developers and non-developers easy access to configure and manage the backend app data. The UI data model designer allows you to build a backend by focusing on your domain-specific objects, relationships, and authorization rules instead of setting up database tables, APIs, and auth infrastructure. 
Once defined, the admin UI automatically provisions the necessary backend infrastructure, such as Cognito, AppSync, DynamoDB, CloudFormation. You can optionally pull the resulting stack templates into the Amplify CLI and continue development on your local machine. So look, you know, what I've just mentioned there is Amplify in a nutshell. You know, it's pulling together Cognito, AppSync, DynamoDB, CloudFormation, and it is making this easy for you. If you haven't used Amplify before, spend a few moments. You know, it's really powerful stuff and you can achieve a lot in a very little amount of time. Yeah, I'm actually particularly excited for the last one too because it, it I've tried to build admin UIs before in the past and it's just you're pulling libraries from different places, sources from different places and you're trying to cobble it together sometimes. So it's nice to be able to just spin it up with you know one CLI command and it just does all the backend for you. So I, I can't wait to play with that one. Let's wrap up, so let's wrap up this section with a uh, another new service we launched at reInvent, uh, AWS Proton. Uh, this one solves another pain point, and it was actually a toss up between this one and the Connect one. Uh, but I've had to manage this uh, through my I've had to manage this myself with a lot of my customers. Uh, you know, many times um, infrastructure teams want to provide developers with a common, you know, non developer components to use in their applications. Uh, this may be network setup, maybe it's VPC, security groups, maybe it's NACL rules. Uh, maybe it's you know EC2 instances with specific applications on there uh, that are part of the core image, right? And so I'd often sit with my, you know my customers. We'd figure out what those components are. We'd figure out um, what additional core components need to go on top of that. Um, you know how do you distribute them out to the organization to the developer community in the organization? Um, well, that was the plan at least. Um, you'd put them out there as infrastructure as code with CloudFormation. Maybe you'd use other languages. Um, and then you'd have to do post checks to monitor and make sure there's no drift, uh, make sure the template wasn't changed, um, make sure there's no security vulnerabilities that would, was, were introduced. Um, it was such a wait and hope approach. Um, and I'm really hopeful that AWS Proton will actually simplify this. Um, so I wanted to walk some, you know, our customers kind of through this and what it would look like. And so this is kind of how it work, right? You're, you're going to go in the console. You're going to create something called an environment template. Um, as the administrator, I create that. This defines those shared resources. Then I'm going to actually create something, uh, and I'm going to create something called a service template. I'm going to register that with Proton. This is going to define the related infrastructure, maybe monitoring components. Uh, maybe there's a CI/CD resources that are part of this as well um, that are comp uh, compatible with those environment templates. Um, and then I go ahead and deploy those. Uh, and then, so then as the developer, um, you're going to select the registered service template and provide a link to your uh, source code repository. Uh, Proton will then deploy that service with the CICD pipeline uh, for your service instances. Uh, Proton will then manage and deploy all the service, the service instances, um, and the running source code that was defined in the service template. A, um, a service instance is an instantiation of, of the selected service template in an environment for a single stage of a pipeline. That's really interesting there because I can think of in the past, you know, some of my customers who have homebrewed their own tooling, you know, to provide the exact benefit that Proton is here. You know, often a lot of customers will actually wrap things around using RAM or the resource access manager and then provide a wrapper around that to be able to use shared resources like, you know, a shared VPC, shared security groups, etc. Proton, though, you know, it's something that customers don't need to manage themselves. So, you know, take a look here. And that's a wrap for the app dev specific updates. Let's move on to containers, which, you know, is the buzzword of the year, probably last year as well. So we're going to start with EKS. You know, many Kubernetes users install additional operational software for observability, scaling, network, and security, and so on. You know, the, Kubernetes is a vast ecosystem. Previously, you'd install these packages manually, and you'd have to track versions and installing updates after upgrading your cluster's Kubernetes version. You know, it's a bit of a job. With this update, EKS lets you install, manage, and update common operational software for your cluster directly through the EKS console, CLI, all API. All operational software is validated by AWS and can be deployed and updated during cluster setup or at any time. You can see available add-ons and compatible versions in their EKS API. Select the version of the add-on you want to run on your cluster and configure key settings such as the iron role used by the add-on when it runs. Kubernetes, K8, Kube, you know, it's popular and it's probably as close as a common cloud component, let alone container orchestration that is common across on-premise and other commercial clouds. But EKS removes a lot of the heavy lifting around Kubernetes. 
But what if you wanted the benefits of EKS in a non-AWS environment? Yeah, that's right, Shane. Um, I actually find the Kubernetes journey a little interesting here, right? Think back to a time when there was Kubernetes on AWS, which was just Kubernetes itself running on AWS following the best practice guidelines. Uh, then there was EKS, which brought managed Kubernetes services, uh, service like ECS. Um, and then there was Fargate for EKS. And now we're coming back around full circle uh, with Amazon Elastic Kubernetes Service EKS uh, distro. Um, it's the same Kubernetes distribution used by uh, used by Amazon EKS uh, for customers who want to create their Kubernetes clusters manually uh, wherever their applications are deployed. The EKS distro provides builds and codes of open source Kubernetes, uh, etcd, core DNS, upstream CNI core binaries, uh, CSI sidecar containers, um, and the latest security patches. Uh, the distro is available as an open source project uh, from the GitHub and ECR public gallery. Uh, more on that last one shortly. Uh, you can get started with the EKS distro by following the guidance on cluster creation using uh, KOps, uh, kubeadmin, uh, or any of your own tools um, as described in our documentation on GitHub that we'll link in the show notes. Fantastic. All right. EKS keeps growing and getting better. And look, one of the things I'm really excited to see right out of these EKS announcements is you know ways customers can optimize their cost on AWS. It's fantastic to see ways where we continue to drive down cost. And it's this announcement, you know, EKS support for Spot. So Spot is such an awesome offering. And a fun fact, other than my CloudFront and Route 53 stickers, I've got a Spot sticker, which takes pride of place on the suitcase that I travel with. Now, perhaps one day I'll dust it off again, but for now, in the context of EKS and Spot instances, you can use Spot instances for managed node groups. And this is going to enable customers to take advantage of you know, the savings that come with Spot. And this is going to enable customers to take advantage of the really steep savings and scale that Spot instances provide. This is another quick win to save some money. So when you create a new managed node group, you'll be able to supply multiple instance types, including Spot, you know, just as you would when you are creating an, an auto-scaling group these days, you know, being able to include on-capacity demand and Spot and specify multiple instance types. Just at the capacity type as Spot and multiple EC2 instance types that meet your resource requirements. Remember, managed node groups enhance your node group's availability by enabling capacity-optimized allocation strategy and capacity rebalancing on EC2 auto-scaling groups they manage. You can create these through the EKS API, the EKS Management Console, EKS CTL, and using infrastructure as code tools, you know, like CloudFormation, Terraform, and so on. Yeah, I have a customer that's going to be all over this one. Um, they have an EKS cluster that's just used for batch workloads, um, and it runs on a schedule, right? Those worker nodes are disposable, um, and the apps have been designed to handle a worker node failure. So now they'll just set up the node group to use the spot instances, and they'll save money with no changes to their app. Uh, so I'm super excited for that one. All right, let's go to the last one for EKS. Um, it's for the customers who are using EKS with Fargate. Uh, you can now forward container logs from pods running on AWS Fargate uh, to other services for log storage and analytics. You don't have to install or maintain any sidecars uh, here since uh, Amazon EKS with Fargate now includes the built-in logging uh, router. You're going to define where you want to send your uh, log data uh, using Kubernetes config map. Um, and the logs are routed to the destination of your choice. Under the hood here, EKS is using a, a version of FluentBit, which is managed by AWS and is upstream conformant. Uh, so you get a consistent interface across compute types, whether your pods are running on, uh, on Amazon EC2 uh, or on Fargate. You just mentioned FluentBit. Listeners, if you aren't familiar with FluentBit and would like to know more, which is a fantastic logging framework, Listen to a previous version of Tech Chat where I had a session with Mitch Beaumont, which we covered all things Kubernetes. But look, overall, logging is paramount, and I'm going to encourage all of you to have a logging strategy. You know, where do you log? How long do you keep logs for? What is the verbosity level? Where do you ingest? And then how do you drive operational intelligence? Shy, I have one more here in my notes. And up until this next update was released, the EKS console only included the AWS infrastructure components for a Kubernetes cluster managed by EKS. You needed to install and run additional tools to view and troubleshoot Kubernetes resources and applications. So now cluster operators get a common and consistent view of their cluster's configuration, status, supporting cloud infrastructure without having to install those tools. You know, that single pane here. So the updated EKS console now shows the Kubernetes API resources, including nodes, workloads, 
deployments, daemon sets, and jobs. And you can visually navigate how an application is deployed on the cluster, see the status of cluster resources, and quickly link back to cloud resources, including your EC2 instances. So look, overall, you know, an updated EKS console, take a look. Yeah, so this next one's in, in two parts, uh, but both are going to relate to ECR. I actually hosted a webinar on ECR a while back, so I'm excited to see these features added. Uh, before moving to my current role, I was actually in a professional services organization um, and I was supporting financial service organizations. Um, and I recall many of my conversations we had were about using public registries um, and why I was so frowned upon in the organization. Um, it was either a security nightmare uh, or it was just a security nightmare plus the operational pain. Um, the latter was particularly painful as they would duplicate and manage public images locally, which really makes it difficult to, for the, to keep those images in sync uh, with the public versions of those, right? And when there's new ones, it just adds more complexity. Uh, they'd want to replicate uh, that image to every region that they were running in as well, um, just to get the lowest possible startup times. Uh, so I'm happy to share for those customers and many other uh, customers that there's now uh, Amazon ECR Public. It's a fully managed uh, registry that makes it easy for developers to publicly share container software wor uh, worldwide uh, for anyone to download. Uh, anyone with or without an AWS account can use the uh, ECR public registry uh, to pull container uh, software for use. So ECR public gallery is a, it's a website that's going to allow you to browse and search uh, for those public container images, view the developer provided details, um, and then see the pull commands that you need. Um, in order to push your image, you're going to issue that Docker push command from your CSD workflow. These images are then going to be geo-replicated for uh, reliable availability around the world. So what happens if you've already written and packaged your app as a container, but you want to use Lambda to run that container because you want to take advantage of things like Lambda triggers to which there is a heap. You know, you can invoke a Lambda function from so many events in your environment. Sure, you could write a Lambda function to hook into another function running on a container, absolutely. But that container has to be running all the time. And really, you know, you should be using a messaging queue probably at that point. You no longer have to do any of this as you can now package and deploy Lambda functions as a container image up to 10 gigabytes in size. You can use familiar container tools, workflows, and dependency management, just like you've been doing in the past. And these container images function just like a Lambda function deployed as a zip file. So all the usual benefits Lambda apply here. Now, I'm assuming, and I haven't tested this as yet, you know, this is going to be leveraging Firecracker under the hood to get these really fast, you know, startup times here. I really like this update. It will give way, this is my prediction, to another means of Lambda use. No longer limited to a specific runtime, just execute your container. You know, how amazing is that, listeners? Lambda functions can now run for 15 minutes, you know, giving you a lot of choice on how, you know, you execute and leverage Lambda. So we've also open sourced a set of software packages, runtime interface clients that implement the Lambda runtime API, allowing you to extend your preferred base image to be Lambda compatible. The runtime interface clients are available for popular programming language runtimes, and we've also open sourced a lightweight web server, the Lambda Runtime Interface Emulator, and that's a mouthful, that allows your function packaged as a container image to accept HTTP requests. Shy, we kicked off containers with EKS, incredibly popular. Let's close it with our own container orchestration platform, ECS. This last one's going to be for anyone out there using ECS uh, who's run into challenges where deployments fail or don't run, uh, don't reach that steady state. Uh, there are several reasons why deployment can be unhealthy. Uh, some might, might include a breaking change to code uh, that was introduced or maybe a service configuration change, a, a misconfiguration health check. Um, and so ideally you, you want here is some sort of circuit breaker, um, some way that if a deployment is gonna fail, you just cut it off and ideally even roll that back. In preview, we have ECS deployment circuit breaker. Uh, customers can now auto roll back unhealthy service deployments without the need for manual intervention. Deployment circuit breaker will monitor your deployments for recurring task launch failures, which may indicate that the deployment will not reach that steady state. Uh, you can even uh, enable auto rollback. And when this is enabled, ECS will automatically attempt uh, to roll back that failed deployment uh, to its previous healthy state of that service, while it will still respect that deployment configuration that was defined. Uh, there's a new API parameter called uh, rollout state, uh, which will service the status of the deployment. So with this announcement here of ECS deployment circuit breaker, it's going to simplify customers' CI/CD pipelines. Some customers may 
have, you know, logic is part of their CI/CD pipeline around rollbacks, you know, to detect failed uh, deployments. This is just going to reduce the complexity here. All right, so that wraps up the container section of this show. Let's jump into databases because as they say, you know, all roads lead to Rome. And in most NT architectures, Rome is probably going to be the database engine. First up is Babelfish. Yeah, that's that's the fictional species of fish uh, that was invented by Douglas Adams in the 1978 uh, book from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I remember that. Um, I remember playing that <laughs> game on an XT, you know, 8088. Um, didn't really know what I was doing then. I was uh, quite a young fellow, but I do remember that. So yes, the Babelfish could instantaneously translate between any language. So I guess sort of like that. So with this update, say you've got a Microsoft SQL server workload on-prem or in AWS today, and you wanted to take advantage of Aurora, you know, save some money around licensing, etc. You could use a schema conversion tool to migrate the database schema to MySQL or Postgres. So now with Babelfish, which understands SQL Server Wire Protocol and T-SQL, you don't have to switch database drivers or rewrite all of your application queries. Babelfish for Aurora PostgreSQL is now available for preview. Yeah, I can really see this one helping out my customers uh, reduce their licensing costs and reduce their management overhead with really minimal work on their part. This is still in preview, but marketing aside, I do wonder how this is going to work. Yeah, sure, it's wire compatible, you know, with T-SQL. However, you know, what I know about Microsoft SQL customers and what some of them really love is stored procedures. So perhaps you need a line in the sand in your organization to migrate off stored procs. Because it's one thing to be, you know, why are protocol compliant, but what do you do with these stored procs? You know, but I think, you know, if your licensing bill is just that big, I'm sure you will invest the time and effort to wean yourself off them. And look, while we're talking, you know, databases here, the next version of Aurora was just announced. Now, we did a whole episode on Aurora in episode 51, but in case you aren't aware, Aurora, modern relational database built for the cloud. Like many of our services, it's fully managed and it is MySQL and PostgreSQL compliant. So it has great performance and gives that enterprise-grade reliability, you know, one-tenth of the cost of traditional options. It is distributed across multiple availability zones, being fault-tolerant. Storage and compute is decoupled, and it can auto-scale up to 64 terabytes in size. Now, that was version 1, but reInvent has given birth and delivered version 2. Aurora Serverless version 2 provides the ability to scale in a fraction of a second. You know That alone is different to version 1 as it can take seconds to auto-scale and adjust capacity based on load. So instead of doubling capacity every time a workload needs to scale, as it does in the current version, version 1, it's going to adjust capacity in fine-grained increments to provide just the right amount of database resources for an application's needs. There's no database capacity for you to manage, you know, which is quite a change. You only pay for the capacity your application consumes. You know, and there are big savings on the table here because you know, if you over-provision, you're paying for idle compute and storage time. Version 2 also provides a full breadth of Aurora capabilities, so the usual multi-AZ support, global databases, read replicas, and is ideal now for a much broader set of applications. So supporting enterprises that have hundreds of thousands of applications and want to manage you know, database capacity across the entire fleet and software as a service vendors that have multi-tenant environments. Today, available in preview for MySQL only. If you're a data exchange partner or subscriber, listen up as this next one's for you. Uh, if you've used data exchange in the past as a data provider, you would have had to create trial data sets uh, for your customers to restrict them to data within their subscription period. Uh, with the launch of revision access rules, uh, data providers have the flexibility to price historical and future data appropriately without having to create and maintain multiple data sets. Um, and if you're a subscriber, this one will also impact you as vendors will be able to uh, more efficiently issue you data sets, uh, data subsets uh, access to their large data pool uh, with less work on their end. Customers use uh, Data Exchange to subscribe to a diverse selection of third-party data products. Uh, check it out in the console if you haven't before. Um, I'm going to continue on, Shane, with this next one. As I uh, wrote down my notes here, a couple of customers who are going to be interested in this next particular one. Um, and as I work with local-based customers, uh, one of the challenges uh, they've shared is their challenge in moving from on-prem traditional databases uh, to cloud services. Um, even when it comes to RDS, 
which is a managed database service, they still hesitate simply because it's different uh, than what the, their DBAs are comfortable with, um, and it's a change. So we have training for uh, for those DBAs who are looking to pick up new cloud database skills, uh, but sometimes uh, maybe not. It might not even be a skills reason uh, that they don't want to migrate uh, to RDS or that that migration is not going to happen. Maybe it's a, just a resource availability thing. Um, and so at reInvent this year, we launched uh, Amazon RDS Service Delivery part, uh, Program. Uh, the goal here is to help customers find AWS partners with specific data database engine expertise uh, to set up, operate, and scale the relational databases in the cloud. Um, once you've moved over, uh, maybe operations calms down a bit, uh, maybe there's more people over time, you can bring that RDS management in-house or maybe even leverage a partner to help you migrate to Aurora and get rid of that server altogether. Last RDS update here for customers running RDS on Oracle. Starting with version 12.1.0.2 v10, bit of a mouthful, and higher of RDS for Oracle, you have the ability to now set up automatic replication of system snapshots and transaction logs from a primary AWS region to a secondary AWS region. Enough said here. I think that's it for RDS. Let's jump to Redshift. Now we've got a couple of these updates. So let's quickly, you know, refresh Redshift, you know, our fast, simple and effective data warehouse. You know, a quick one here as we have a new instance type for Redshift, the RA3.XL+. This is the third and smallest member of the RA3 node family with four vCPUs and 32 gigs of memory at one third of the price of the RA3.4X large instance. We seem to be getting into a bit of a habit of releasing new Redshift instances at reInvent. Yeah, so we have these smaller instances that are, are great for driving down the costs, but, but I know there's use cases out there where you may want to share your Redshift data with others. Uh, doing that up until now meant you had to create disparate Redshift clusters and duplicating them between uh, duplicating data between them. Uh, thankfully, you no longer have to do that with uh, data sharing in Redshift. This, uh, new, this new feature enables instant, uh, granular, and high-performance data access across Amazon Redshift clusters without the need to copy or move data. Data sharing provides live access to data so that your users always see that most up-to-date data um, and consistent information as it's updated in the data warehouse. Uh, with Redshift, the most widely used uh, users and groups that have access to shared data on customer clusters can discover and query that data uh, using standard SQL and uh, analytics tools. When uh, With data sharing, workloads accessing shared data are isolated from each other, and there's no additional cost to use this feature. This is data democratization. The more people that have access to the data, the more creative possibilities there are. Next up is an update around federated query in Redshift, but particularly for those of you using uh, MySQL. Uh, support for RDS Postgres and Aurora uh, Postgres SQL was announced earlier this year, and now that's been extended to RDS for MySQL and uh, Aurora MySQL. Federated Query allows you to incorporate live data from your transactional databases as part of your business intelligence uh, and reporting applications. The Intelligent Optimizer in Amazon Redshift pushes down and distributes a portion of the computation directly into the remote operational databases to speed up their performance by reducing the data moved over the network. Uh, this new capability is available only in MySQL uh, and is available to all Amazon Redshift customers in preview. Shane, uh, help me out with this next one as I haven't had much experience with Redshift tuning. Yeah, look, I think database tuning or Redshift tuning, there's, you know, it's definitely a bit of an art here and it can make a massive difference. So there are a few concepts to keep in mind here. So look, first off are distribution and sort keys. There are table properties that define how data is physically stored. You know, applying these keys can result in significant performance improvements, you know, at particularly at scale. But customers have to apply sort and distribution keys manually. So earlier this month at reInvent, Redshift gained the ability for automatic table optimization. As perhaps you a light on DBA resources. So this is a new self-tuning capability that optimizes the physical design of tables, automatically setting the sort and distribution keys to improve query speed. It's going to continuously observe how queries interact with tables and then use machine learning to select the best sort and distribution keys to optimize performance for the cluster's workload. If Redshift determines that applying a key will improve cluster performance, tables will be automatically altered within a few hours without requiring administrator intervention. It's a bit of a magic black box here. So it's a pretty big thing here as a missing index or the wrong sort and distribution keys can really degrade performance if left unchecked in larger data sets. So to get started, create a table without explicitly setting a sort 
or distribution key. You can modify existing tables for automation by altering the sort and distribution styles with the alter table, table name, alter, sort, key, pipe, this style, auto command. This makes more sense now. And it's it's awesome when these features come out. It, it might seem small, but it just takes one more thing off that database warehouse admin. Uh, that one less thing to worry about means that they're spending more time solving business challenges uh, versus those technical challenges. Uh, so, you know, we've we've talked more about RA3, uh, RA3 X, XL Plus, and that got me thinking uh, that not all customers might be on the RA3 instance family and may be looking for a particular reason to move. Um, so maybe this next update might be that reason for some customers. If you're running your Redshift cluster on the RA3 family, you can now move a cluster to another AZ. The cluster relocation feature moves a cluster to another AZ in one step without requiring any application changes. Yeah, look, our listeners may be wondering, you know, why you do this. Do you have an example you could share? Sure. First one that kind of came to mind is is think of where there's a resource constraint in a given AZ. Say you want to deploy a whole bunch of RA3, uh, dot, maybe 16 XL larges, um, and the particular AZ that you're trying to deploy in doesn't have capacity at that time. You enable this feature uh, by modifying your cluster configuration settings in the Amazon Redshift cluster uh, by the API or maybe by CLI. And then when the cluster is moved to another AZ, the new cluster will have the same endpoint. Yeah, for sure. And look, another example could be, you know, we charge for inter-region data transfer. So, you know, if you have a lot of, I guess, nodes connecting to Redshift or feeding Redshift from a different AZ, potentially you may be incurring a cost. So if you have them all within the same availability zone, you may be able to save on money here. Alrighty, next one up is for you JSON fans using Redshift. So preview support has arrived for native support for JSON and semi-structured data. Many systems and applications these days deal with JSON blobs. I think we are all, you know, in one way, shape or form have to deal with JSON when developing or even, I guess, you know, administering systems today. So having to normalize data to store in a relational database adds that extra layer or overhead. Not only it requires development time, but it can degrade performance, you know, because you're going to have to do a conversion here. With this update, Redshift brings support for native JSON. It's based on the new data type, Super, that allows you to store semi-structured data in Redshift tables. Redshift has also added support for the party QL query language to seamlessly query and process the semi-structured data. We covered PartyQL in prior episodes, but to recap, it's an extension of SQL that is adopted across multiple AWS services. PartyQL allows access to schemaless and nested super data. The support for native semi-structured data processing in Redshift is available in public preview. All right, so final update for uh, Redshift and actually for today's show, Shane. Um, and another reason to be on the RA3 family is a new high-speed cache layer that sits on top of Redshift managed storage called Aqua. Uh, Aqua is, accelerates your data compression, encryption, and data processing on queries that scan, filter, and aggregate large data sets. With this new architecture, uh, customers can run queries quicker, giving them more up-to-date dashboards, reducing development time, and making system maintenance easier. Uh, Aqua is available with the RA3.16XL and RA3.4XL nodes at no additional charge and requires no code changes. Uh, to get started with Aqua, uh, please check out the link in the show notes and the service launch page uh, for regional availability details. So for you avid listeners out there, Aqua was announced actually at reInvent 2019 and it's fantastic now that this is available in preview for you to consume today. All right, Shai, let's close this one out. So we've covered application development, containers, databases, and data warehouse. So for our developer community, we talked about using code gurus, new security detectors to help you find and remediate security issues in your code. And it brings support for Python in code guru, which is in preview. So that's going to help people like you and me here. We shared another new service, DevOps Guru in preview. So it's for measuring and improving an application's operational performance. Lambda now supports up to 10 gigabytes of memory and six vCPU cores and billing granularity reduced to one millisecond. So, you know, some pretty big wins here for Lambda. API Gateway now supports integration with step function start sync execution for HTTP based APIs. AppFlow simplifies cloud app integrations for connect customers with customer profiles. Similarly, AppFlow can provide similar app integrations with a lot of third-party apps to Honeycode. For those Amplify users, deploy Fargate containers through the Amplify CLI and you get a new admin UI to boot. 
For those Amplify users, you can deploy Fargate containers through the Amplify CLI, and you can now get a new admin UI to boot that deploys all the underlying bits and bobs for you. And we close out the app dev with another new service, Proton, to bridge a gap between platform and development teams. And in containers, we kicked off with EKS, uh, first cluster add-ons managed through the EKS cluster CLI or the API, run EKS on-prem with EKS distro, uh, run even spot instances in your EKS cluster, uh, EKS on Fargate now has built-in logging with Fluent Bit under the hood. Uh, you can now see all your Kubernetes resource in the EKS cluster without needing any extra tools. Uh, public registries for your container images with ECR Public and the ECR Public Gallery. Uh, use your existing containers in Lambda uh, as a Lambda package format. Uh, and finally, ECS uh, Deployment Circuit Breaker is in preview uh, to stop those deployments from getting worse and provide you an auto rollback. In database land, we covered Babelfish, you know, not the mythological creature, but a translation layer between Aurora, PostgreSQL, and Microsoft SQL. Version 2 of Aurora has arrived, considerably faster and scales in a fraction of a second, with scaling so fast it's perfect for those event-driven applications. Data Exchange gets revision access rules for governing access. RDS service delivery partners for when you want someone to build, deploy, and manage your RDS deployments. RDS cross-region backups come to RDS for Oracle. And you can share data across Redshift clusters with data sharing in preview and pull data from partners directly via the Redshift console. Redshift federated query comes to RDS for MySQL and Aurora MySQL. Redshift automatic table optimization. You know, this is a good one here to keep your data warehouse running in tip-top shape auto-magically. You can move Redshift clusters easily across availability zones, and there is JSON support in preview for Redshift. Finally, Aqua comes to Redshift in preview as a caching layer to speed up queries. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, I'd really recommend our listeners take a look at the AWS News blog to dive deeper um, on some of these topics. There's so much information out there. Um, And take a look through the show notes in case you missed anything. We went through a lot. Okay, listeners, that is a wrap. So, Shai, thank you for joining. Once again, you are becoming a virtual regular around here, and I couldn't have done this without you, really. So, keep the feedback coming. Drop us an email, awstechchat at amazon.com, as your messages do drive the direction of this show. Join us again next time for part three of our reInvent 2020 series. But until next time, bye for now. Signing off, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting awstechchat.com.